idea of image that the idea that it is already inclusive of participation in the Trinity. So that, you know, we're doing John, First John is that uh, we would love one another and he's equating the love of God and love of neighbor so that uh, our participation in God in the Trinity, in knowing God, in John's estimation, is not different than love of neighbor. Uh, so that uh, I think that it is a, it speaks specifically then to that there is this alienation and fragmentation in human relations that is carried over into our relationship with God. I think last time I, I had talked a little bit about the continuity between the church and Israel. The idea being that if we connect the history of the church to Israel, that is a sure way of grounding our understanding of the church in a real world political, social, economic. In other words, was, was Israel, did it have a politic? Well, of course it did. Did it have a peculiar economics? Did it, was it a peculiar culture? And so, yes, and so too, the church as the fulfillment of Israel is a politic. It is a culture. It is... Um, to practice a particular kind of economics. This is a quote from John Milbank. He says, In the heavenly city, virtue is not the virtue of resistance and domination. Salvation from sin must mean liberation from political, economic, and psychic agonistic conflict. Every legality has always claimed validity by virtue of its keeping at bay an essentially imaginary chaos. What came first was not anarchy, but this legal, coercive, and itself anarchic assertion. What he's describing here, especially in this political season, is the idea that we always imagine that what the state does for us or what politics does for us, as he says, is that it, uh, it keeps at bay an imaginary chaos. That is, if we don't exclude the foreigners, if we don't you know, keep out those refugees, or that evil is never uh, done... Uh, simply for evil. I'll, I'll leave that statement unqualified. Uh, in other words, I, I don't, even Adolf Hitler, I'm not sure that he did it. You know, he, he was making Germany greater. And so the justification for a particular politic is always to ward off this, you know, well, things will be anarchic. Things will, uh, will, you know, become so we do evil in order that goodness and justice and grace and peace may abound. Mm 
But wait a minute. <laughs> We're justifying evil on the basis of the good. And the danger is that as Christians we'll fall into that kind of thinking. That we'll uh, do uh, things, you know, uh, keep certain people away. or Because what we're imagining uh, and is the, the idea in Aristotle, you know, when he defines peace. He says, well, peace is actually the absence of something. It's the absence of conflict. It's the absence of war. But what we're saying as Christians know that things don't go back to chaos. Things don't return to anarchy. But in fact, it's not an originary chaos, but it's an originary peace that God then is the one who has established and created human beings and the principalities and powers. And so that we are in to entrust ourselves to God. That's a very different thing than securing our own peace, securing our own salvation. So we'll always, uh, I think, involve ourselves in war and violence and antagonism with a kind of fail it's a failure of thought among Christians I mean it's an obvious failure of thought uh, outside of Christianity Milbank goes on to say forgiving practice is an entirely new beginning whose infinite generosity is adequate to God and which inaugurates ex nihilo, a series in no continuity with sin and its own self-antidotes. What he's saying is that evil or sin arises because of the attempt to stop it, to get over it. You know, this is like Freud's definition of the death drive, that the death drive is the drive to get rid of the death drive. Evil is the attempt to rid yourself of evil. You know, we've got to get rid of that evil. We've got to keep those evil people out. Uh, and of course you're demonizing these others in, in the contemporary political scene. Uh, you know, those terrorists or those foreigners or those Middle Easterners or... Um, and once you actually know some Middle Easterners or you know people from these countries, well, that's a very different thing. You, you, then you begin to recognize that it is simply a, a, a failure of thought. He's saying there is no continuity uh, with the idea of for, forgiving practice. That we are inaugurating something on the order of creation ex nihilo. When you forgive someone, when you show mercy, that is on the order, that's the business of recreation, right? That uh, the idea is that it's not through a historical cause and effect uh, event that you do these things, but it's in spite of a series of cause and effect things that we can begin to recreate our own, you know, world order or 
on the in in the church that we're doing things differently. We're inaugurating things in a different way, and that then pictures the strange ethic that we have in the church. We welcome the stranger, a very dangerous thing to do. We know ne- you never know who those strangers might be. Uh, we refuse the norm of violence. Uh, violence is just a necessity in the world. And what we're saying, no, it's not really a necessity. That uh, We don't need to resort to violence in, in any instance. Uh, we re- embrace instead, in other words, we're not securing ourselves, we're not bringing about our own redemption. But that's what it means to believe that we're redeemed by God. And what he's redeeming us in the fa- in face of is death. I mean, there's nothing worse that, you know, in the long run can happen to you than to die. They can always kill you. And, of course, that's the point with Jesus. They killed him. They did the worst that they could do. And he submitted himself to death. And I believe we're to submit ourselves in the same fashion to the worst that they can do with the idea that we don't secure ourselves even against death. Um, that our security then is in the real in the hope of resurrection. Think of Paul here. You know, uh, he does tell the church in Rome to be submissive to the powers. He doesn't tell them to be obedient to the powers. Paul himself, you know, will escape the authorities. He will demand that the authorities come and apologize. Um, The idea is that uh, Paul could face beheading. In other words, uh, because he's living in with the idea and we're living out of, we're giving up our own control. We're giving up the notion that we're going to secure ourselves. Think about this. We're not going to secure ourselves economically. We're not going to secure ourselves in terms of a nation state. You know, I'm going to vote for that right-wing nut so he'll protect us. Uh, We're not going to secure ourselves, you know, in i got to keep some weapons available so I can shoot the bad people. We're not going to secure ourselves in church, you know, put armed guards out front, keep the strangers out. You never know who might come in. You can just go right through. This may seem frightening at first, but I think, in fact, it's a grand, it's a great relief. It's a, a huge burden that we, we don't have to spend our time and energy in the activity that I think is the all-consuming activity of people outside. What is it people are doing? They're securing themselves. They're, they're securing themselves economically. They're securing themselves learning, you know, karate in case, yeah. you know, learning. Uh, you know, it, it, it really describes human activity. Now, I don't, I don't mean to say that we don't, you know, uh, work or that we don't. Yeah. But that is, that's not something that 
you know, even even uh, earning a living can be all-consuming because you can never really secure yourself, can you? Because they may fire you. Uh, or your, the market may collapse, or the so that that if you're agonizing over your own self security, I don't believe that we're enjoying the blessing of the seventh day of rest that's described in Hebrews. That it's no longer you know the struggle that the Jews are pictured as having in the wilderness that they can enter into God's rest. The writer of Hebrews is talking about human life in those terms. So we live out of control. We give up control. And we put ourselves in the security provided by God. Which is a, a that security, you understand, is not a security that is this side of death but it's precisely a security that's given to us in the midst of death. That is, resurrection. You pass through death to get to resurrection. Uh, This is uh, Stanley Howard's. Recognize that liberal democracy, in its refusal of narrative, believing freedom and rationality are independent of narrative, is not synonymous with the Christian social strategy. That is what uh, Harwis's uh, critique of the American dream and the American, the idea. Well, in this country, we just we don't have a narrative. We just, and he's saying, well, no, actually, that is your narrative. Uh, the strange Constantinian fact in the United States is we imagine that the uh, concerns of state and allegiance to the state can coincide with the allegiance to Christ. And I think the point is that the church stands as an alternative to every nation state, every system of security. This is Rodney Clapp. He says, the original Christians were about creating and sustaining a unique culture a way of life that would shape character in the image of their God. And they were determined to be a culture, a quite public and political culture, even if it killed them and their children. So if you go through the language of, you know, gospel, it's a public proclamation, ecclesia, you know, uh, the liturgy, all of those, that language is about public meetings, public service, about a particular culture. The Christians were claiming, like the Jews, to be a culture that is distinctive from Rome. I think that's important. I mean, it, and it costs them not only their own lives, it may cost them the lives of their whole family. You know, that's always the excuse you hear. Well, you've got to protect your family. I don't think Christianity is a protection that we give to our children against the evil of the world. I don't think it works that way. I think in the end that we we are redeemed, but we may not be redeemed from the evils of this world. 
Well, that's a kind of a scary thing. Again, I think our tendency is to say, well, wait a minute, if that's what it's all about, I'm not sure I want to do this thing. Yeah. But I think, I think if we get the picture, it's, a, again, a grand relief yeah. uh, that we don't have to do this thing. I mean, in the reality, you can't secure your children any more than you can secure yourself. Mm-hmm. That's the great, you know, why, if you're thinking of having children, uh, if you're imagining that you have to secure them, that you have to, in some way, be sure that no evil ever comes upon them, you'll never have children. <laughs> it's too scary, you know, because, it, and it's too painful. Because you can't protect them. You can't protect yourself and you can't protect them from. But what we're saying is that ultimately we are secured. We are protected by God. Um, I think this is Howis. I didn't make a note here. Um, The intellectual act of acknowledging the Lordship of Jesus Christ and the ethical act of following him are not two separate things one of which logically follows from the other, but rather are one integrated movement of a life toward God. This integration occurs and can occur only in and through the church. So, the church is an ethic, right? Following Christ is an ethic. The church is a politic. Uh, The church is the peaceable kingdom. And so, unfortunately, what has happened, we've made the... It's, this is Gnosticism. You know, the intellectual act and the ethical act are pictured as two separate things. The Gnostics pictured the divinity of Jesus. They believed in the divinity of Jesus. That was what they were acknowledging. And they believed, they, believe, they would say, the divinity of Christ and the humanity of Jesus. But the two things never met. They were separate. That sounds a lot like, you know, Christianity that's practiced in so much of the world today. Mm-hmm. That we separate the interior, the intellectual, from the ethical. And the idea is that we are in continuity with the kingdom of Israel, which sets up an entirely different ethic, an enti- entirely different law structure. Will you explain that again? Because I read it in your blog too. The Gnostics believed they believed both in his humanity and his deity. Yeah, they because you know usually what we think of as the her- heresy being a denial of the divinity of Jesus, and today yeah. many heresies are that they just say, "Well, Jesus was not," but that was not the failure of the Gnostics. They they believed in the divinity of Christ. But they assumed that uh, the divine, that deity, could never become humanity. And so they pictured the man, Jesus, either as a kind of illusion or as completely removed from the deity of Christ. And you'll run into this in many forms, you know, that, that uh, the Jesus became Christ only at the resurrection, or that it's a developmental thing. Or. So, uh, and of course what I'm picturing here, I think I said it in my blog, is that 
a Christianity that imagines heaven and earth are completely separate realms and that Christ, deity, is concerned only with heaven. Mm-hmm. It's still Gnosticism. It's just a n- different manifestation. I think the idea of separating faith and inward faith, believing from practice, from an ethic, mm-hmm. that's the thing we're reading about in First John. They are acknowledging Christ, but they're walking in the darkness. They're saying they can be citizens of heaven and conform to the world. Think about that. That's the American failure, I'm afraid. I can be a good citizen of the United States and do all that's required of me and uh, obey and be, you know, uh, uh, patriotic and serve in the military or whatever and still be a good kingdom citizen. And what I'd say is, no, you've missed the point that the kingdom of God stands juxtaposed to every human kingdom. Even even the, the kingdoms of this world are simply not meant for redemption, first of all. And second of all, they're under the control of the evil one. Inevitably, because of the logic that they're built upon. This is Howis again. Put starkly, the first social ethical task of the church is to be the church, the servant community. Such a claim may well sound self-serving until we remember that what makes the church the church is its faithful manifestation of the peaceable kingdom in the world. As such, the church does not have a social ethic. The church is a social ethic. Can I uh, give you an example? Mm-hmm. If I understand this right, this is probably the example of what you said about the faith and, you know, a logical thing and ethics. Right? Mm-hmm. Like I was trying to distinguish like, between, you know, sacrifices, you know, not sacrifice, probably about loving, you know, the others and give yourself for the others. You, I mean, to think that and to do it as as we are followers of Christ, we would not kill the other, right? To that, because we love somebody. But you know, like like as we take arms, you know, like I want to kill that person he's harming somebody so the highest honor of death is like I die protecting somebody by killing or fighting against uh-huh. somebody uh-huh. but with Christ who actually died without taking arms I don't know yeah yeah no that's 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 it I mean think of Peter's taking up the sword to protect Jesus in the garden of Gethsemane hmm. what better cause you know, if you're going to take up the sword and go down in a blaze of glory, who would you rather protect than Jesus Christ? So if there is a just war, there would be a just war. I'm going to protect the Son of God, the man who is completely innocent, the one who's purely good. And Jesus 
says, get behind me, Satan. When, when, when Peter says, you should not go up to Jerusalem and die. He tells him, put away your sword. Um, the idea, you know, John Howard Yoder says that for all time then, uh, he's told us to, to put away the sword as Christians. That we are not in the business of uh, protecting the innocent on the basis of violence and warfare. Uh, but the idea is that God protects the innocent, that God gives justice and judgment. You know, he, he judges. It's, a, it's a, uh, a hope in the face of evil uh, that may seem fantastic, you know, it seems may seem improbable. Well, what's your choice? <laughs> to engage in evil, you know, to use evil to fight evil? And of course, what many would say, well, it's, you know, uh, that you have to f- fight this, you know, sword with the sword. But that's precisely the cycles of revenge and violence and, and warfare are definitive of human history. I mean, in my lifetime, I can't remember a time, I don't think there is a time, when there was not war. And and, in most of those times, the United States was involved in war. It just, one after another. And they always seem the same. Oh, we have to do this. It's a necessity. We have to secure ourselves. As Christians, we can get caught up in that logic, and I think we have to resist it. Is that? Yeah. So, um, and that is our ethic. I mean, that's the beginning of an alternative ethic. Um, And the church then is founded with this very purpose that it is a kingdom that does not give itself over to the ethical principles that control the logic that controls the world. So I think what happens is that we make the kingdom of God another worldly. You know, when Jesus says, my my kingdom is not of this world, we imagine, oh, well, it must be up beyond Mars. Mm -hmm. But what he meant is, no, my kingdom is not established in the way that kingdoms of this world, my kingdom is not from this world. It's not doesn't follow the pattern. You know, if I wanted to, he says I could call down a legion of angels and they would. Mm-hmm. But he doesn't do that because that's not the nature of the kingdom that he's established. Mm-hmm. This this all gets very, you know, complicated and confusing. Not because it originally is, but because we've complicated it and imagined that. All that Jesus is doing is in some way mediating the uh, transcendent world to us. And, you know, when we die, we'll go there. Mm -hmm. And we miss the fact that, no, it's an alternative life here. That we can begin to live. You know, it's a hard thing to to enter this new, this strange new world. But I think that's what we're called to. As plowshares community as a community of people here in Moberly I think we got to check out in some way that and I, I it's a thing we continually examine ourselves 
and see if we're doing it because I think it is difficult because uh, the kingdoms of this world and the values of this world just continually impinge upon us. It's a continual temptation for all of us. We all know that. We all feel that. In lots of different ways. Even if it's... Yeah, just any negative feelings or hateful thoughts about people in our life or even people in the group or anybody. I mean, you're just constantly, like, checking yourself. Yeah, and and so um, I think think that uh, that's part of the picture of, you know, just doing an anatomy of, of things like, jealousy, anger, rage, hatred. We can run all that down and we can say, well, this is where this is all coming from. And understand that if you give yourself over to those things, you're just doing what everybody else is doing. That's just the way the world operates. Uh, What has happened is we look at, you know, there's a separation not only between the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of earth and people's thinking that you're making the but there's also then a separation of the ethical life of Jesus as in the gospels and the ethic that is given to us in the epistles and the church Uh, same thing in terms of the cross that Jesus is pictured as going to the cross he died so that we don't have to um, and we see the, the cross then, the, the life of Jesus. You know, once you make the, the death of Christ a kind of sacramental thing, uh, you know, the, whether it's the sacrament that you have in the Catholic Church or whether it's Luther's imputed righteousness, I think they both then are guilty of the same thing in that it is not a call to us to take up the cross and follow Jesus. It's making of Christianity a kind of magical religion that, you know, uh, say this prayer or eat this bread and do these things and you will uh, receive salvation. But receiving, you know, salvation is becoming a follower of Jesus. So you've heard the, you know, is it the Nicene Creed that born of a virgin, crucified and raised on the third day. That's the one of the earliest creeds, but what gets left out of that creed is the life of Christ. Mm-hmm. You have the birth and you have the death and the resurrection. Mm-hmm. Wait a minute, what about the ethical life that Jesus demonstrated, you know, modeled for us? It's not there in the creeds. Because very early, you know, in uh, the the idea was that uh, there was a kind of sacramentalizing, mm-hmm. uh, and not to say that Jesus doesn't, you know, create an alternative life for us, but he does it here and now, and he does it in a in flesh, embodied sort of way. Mm-hmm. So it, you know, in evangelicalism, we've kind of made it all about a personal relationship mm-hmm. with Jesus, and I don't mean to. I don't mean to, to, to say that's a, you know, that we shouldn't have a relationship with Jesus, but we imagine we can do that privately. Mm-hmm. And that, that is 
against, uh, over and against, or different from our public, our communal. And so if you want to have a close relationship with Jesus, John says, love your brother. Mm-hmm. How can we love God whom we've not seen? Yeah. We don't love our neighbor whom we have seen. Yeah, I just thought of that early on. Maybe I never shared it with you, but I, I've been critical of myself too, but I never acknowledged, fully acknowledged I just like personal relationship with God. Uh, it's kind of I probably blasphemy even now that. I said to myself, like, man, this sucks. <laughs> yeah. I am. I don't enjoy it all. Just having a personal relationship with God, you mean? Like, yeah, just to years? talk to like that. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Here's George, my imaginary friend, and here's Jesus, my imaginary friend. Yeah, yeah. it's like that. Mm-hmm. It's kind of scary. Go ahead. <laughs> well, I'm I'm immediately thinking of if my daughter were here, <laughs> she would say, "Wait a minute, you can't say that." <laughs> yeah. And and so yeah, I mean, um, I, I I think that um, cl- clearly there is a personal interior side and I don't mean to deny that but I think I think a pie there is a pietistic kind of understanding mm-hmm. that imagines that the life in the spirit is purely ethereal it's you know purely interior mm-hmm. and I, my point would be while there is profound interiority to you know, obviously that's there. Mm-hmm. That, but what's in the heart and what's in the mouth in Jesus' picture, mm-hmm. that is what is outside, what's inside, are not separate things. Mm-hmm. And so I think, yeah, we need to have a deep prayer life. and you know. But even, even there, I think that um, the, the, the two of external and internal have been... Even Bible reading, you know. How do you read the Bible? I think there is a kind of pietistic way that God is going to mystically speak to you as you read and concentrate on the Scripture. Uh, That He will whisper in your ear. I don't think, at least He's never whispered in my ear in that way. And I don't, in other words, I think that, yes, the Bible speaks to us. But I think Scripture speaks to us then, not apart from our communal relationship, but as part of that communal mm-hmm. relationship. Mm-hmm. Maybe you're, I'm, I'm, you're with Joel here, I think. Oh, just a little. Okay. But it's not. It's saying the same thing. I just think we tend to do one or the other. Like mm-hmm. we, you know, what I mean, we we go to one extreme or the other. So. So, I mean, I always think of what Bonhoeffer says, too, which you pointed out before. You know, you can't really be with people unless you can be by yourself, and you can't really be by yourself unless you can be with people. Mm-hmm. So it's, we just have the tendency to, you know, to think, you know, just to mm-hmm. do one or the other. So we just kind of got to be careful to, mm-hmm. to recognize and to make time mm-hmm. for both. That's what I do, anyways, in my life. I 
but I'm like, okay, spending all my time with people or fellowship and discussion and, uh-huh. or spending a lot of time by myself and being fulfilled by praying or journaling or reading, you know, uh-huh. so to, you know, but it probably has a lot, there's a lot that goes into why we would do one or the other sometimes in our life too. It could be a particular insecurity in that time, you know, uh-huh. or whatever reason we would maybe want to be avoiding people in our life or fellowship or or avoiding being alone with God, you know, so there could be different reasons why we would be afraid of either one of those. Let me conclude. This is um, a thought from, you know, the, the Jesus prayer that he says, thy kingdom come. Well, that rules out, I think, any idea of a purely interior kingdom. He's saying, thy kingdom come on earth, that he's going to set up a, an order of people that is his kingdom in which he's the king and that we are his subjects. In other words, it's not a kingdom in the air. And so the prayer that he models for us, the thing we're to be praying about, is a socio-political, cultural institution of the kingdom of God on earth. Um, it's not a purely heavenly, it's not an otherworldly kingdom. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, even the, when Jesus talks to Pilate, he says, my kingdom is not from. He, he's not saying of, he's saying from. It's, yeah. uh, it's clearly a kingdom that immediately his followers are established in the church. So I think that whatever you do with human interiority, you do not separate it from the socio-political, cultural institution. And even our prayers, I guess our prayers are, you know, even our private prayers are about this public thing. And not that uh, I could see, have a beatific vision and see Jesus in the sky we're to not be praying that way we're not to be seeking a vision of God outside of the flesh we're to be seeking the institution of the kingdom of God a heavenly kingdom but a heavenly kingdom that's going to be established on earth now that's not uh, some final word that but I think the idea is that it, it is over and against a, a religion or Christianity that says, well, uh, Jesus died for my sins, and that's the end of the story. Yeah. Well, uh, it, a, it abstracts the meaning of Jesus' life and his, you know, his, uh, the meaning of the Gospels from history itself. God's doing something in history. Yeah. It, I, I, the word politics may great people the wrong way, but 
I think if we depoliticize Jesus and we say, oh, the church has nothing to do with politics, the danger is that we'll miss the, the nature, the, the lordship of Christ in a kingdom. That's political. It's a political kingdom in that sense. So, our, the, and that's, I'm with you here, Chris. I think our tendency to do our Christianity in our head can, not in any way to, to uh, criticize journaling or having private time. You know, I don't, I don't suppose anybody spends more time by themselves than I do. Uh, but uh, that is not uh, the the place in which our religion takes place and then we move no, that Christianity uh, brings those two things together yeah. that was my thought for the day and all of this is the uh, the word apocalyptic you know, the, an apocalyptic kingdom breaking into the world mm-hmm. that's the language of the New Testament the end is near. The apocalypse is upon us. Yeah, because the that, you know, God, is near. God is near. The kingdom of God has come. Yeah. So the prayer that we're praying is actually f- being fulfilled. Yeah. I think the Lord's prayer is being fulfilled. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's great to see the, the picture of uh, that. You know, over against the thought that the kingdom... That the true kingdom of God is still out, you know, is still to come. You know, this is just a temporary thing. That's how it is always understood. You know, this is a world, a messed up world. When we die, it's a plus. We can fly. Up. Yeah, I'll fly away. Yeah. It's Who cares? You know. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. so unleash. Yeah. If 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 everything we're doing is only a temporary measure. Well, cut down the trees, pollute the rivers, you know, dump the coal waste in the yeah. in the rivers. Uh, yeah, might as well just use this thing up. It's gonna it's gonna end anyway. It's gonna burn up. Yeah, just go ahead. And... Well, that's not Christianity. That's Gnosticism. Mm-hmm. But other than that, it's great. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. It's like God has constituted a a you know, like a sacrificial life, but in the way that we do it too, it's like we, we, we totally, you know, God died for me, but, and this now is time for me to die for, for him, but in the way we die for him, it's like we actually die, but die killing somebody. <laughs> we, we're still in a sacrificial system in which we had sacrificed the world mm-hmm. and all that goes with it. Well, that, that's the wrong sacrifice. Yeah. You know, like, what about the crusade? You, you ever thought of that? Like, you know, during the... It was unleashing... Uh, it was clearly a failure of theology. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and again, the crusades are, you know, at various times anti-Semitic or anti-Muslim. But in either instance, the failure is a failure to understand the nature of the kingdom of God. Mm-hmm. That he does not establish his kingdom on the basis of violence or the sword. Yeah. 
It's a great evangelistic tool to hold the sword to somebody's throat and said, convert or die. Yeah. Uh, and that's, you know, uh, that just war theory is precisely connected to that. It is, you know, not that Augustine institutes that, but out of an Augustinian mm-hmm. understanding of how you deal with heretics, mm-hmm. just war theory comes out of that and just war theory originally is a discussion about isn't it uh, don't we have just cause to threaten the infidel with the sword so that we might save his soul so it's again a split between body and soul in which you can do violence to somebody's body on behalf of their soul as if those two things are disconnected so I think the Crusades are guilty of a Gnostic division, uh, body, soul, you know, kingdom of God. It's the same. We just continually fall into this problem. People do evil. You know, the grace may abound. God forbid. That's not Christianity. That's the that's the religion of the enemy. And I, I, that harsh language, I think, we, is there in John, you know, but uh, we fall back in there.